0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the European Student Think Tank podcast. My name is Victoria.
1: And this is Florentin. Today, we are joined by Vasilis Psaras, writer at EST, to discuss the future of the sustainability and growth pact. Great to have you
2: with us. Hello, Victoria and Florentin, and thank you for having me here with you. So let's start briefly by introducing yourself and this topic. Just to briefly introduce myself, I'm Vasilis Psaras, coming from Greece. Uh, I have been a writer at the EST for two years now, and I'm currently doing my Master's in Economics at K.O. Leuven. Through this episode, I want to inform your audience about the past, present, and future of the Sustainability and Growth Pact. Until this year, the rules of the Sustainability and Growth Pact have been suspended because of the pandemic and the unprecedented recession in the economy. So now, a very important debate on the future of the Sustainability and Growth Pact has started. The pact was implemented in 1998-99 and was the evolution of the fiscal standards first seen in the Maastricht Treaty. These rules simply say that the public debt-to-GDP ratio of a member state should not exceed 60% and the deficit ratio should not be higher than 3%. The main questions that we have to ask is why these rules were introduced in the first place and what we can do about them.
0: Yes, that sounds very interesting, especially considering the specific historical movement and that we also recently discussed sanctions and the repercussions on domestic and international markets. But talking numbers, what are we looking at? The data and estimates you will be talking about, where do they come from and why are we talking about them?
2: These percentages about debts and deficit have been criticized quite harshly for many reasons, and the most obvious of all is how they occurred in the first place. Many EU countries like Greece, Italy, and even Belgium had already violated the PAR criteria in the late 1990s by having a public debt ratio to GDP above 90%. The idea of 3 and 60% is rather simple and it didn't really care about special cases of highly in countries. The average public debt GDP in the EU then was 60%, and based on the macroeconomic environment at that time, policymakers thought that this average would remain unchanged with a public deficit of 3%. That's how these numbers occur, to safeguard the cohesion of the monetary union. But it is important to mention that no scientific work justifies these numbers, apart from this simple assumption. Reinhardt and Rogoff, in one of their most influential papers in 2010, wrote that economic growth is negatively affected by high public debt, and found an upper threshold of 90% of GDP. This paper was often used by policymakers during the debt crisis to support the argument of austerity, and that it would be more reasonable now to work with 90% of GDP instead of the completely unrealistic 60% in order to secure economic growth. At least with 90% justification of the number would be much easier.
1: Given the controversy around these numbers, it is important to ask whether the pact is actually useful in the Eurozone. Does it serve any purpose in this day and age?
2: As I mentioned, there might be issues uh, with the chosen numbers and how they apply to the EU economy. I think that the main concepts of having limits on public spending and a threshold on public debt is extremely important. Primarily, we have to examine what economic theory tells us about the idea of fiscal expansion in a monetary union. Some New Keynesian economists who have worked on the concept of the monetary union have shown that expansionary fiscal policies from one member state can have negative spillover effects on other member states. So that means that the more fiscal expansion France implements, uh, for example, the more negative this effect is going to be in Germany, based on these game theory models. The deficit rule tried to minimize these effects while still offering fiscal space for its member states. The second reason why we need the PAC is that we need to avoid fiscal expansion being a, a freelance. Countries should be responsible for the fiscal position independently from the economic conditions. And the idea of retaining low debt and deficit levels could safeguard that EU member states wouldn't default on their debt.
0: This sounds very reasonable, however there's a concrete example of a time when the Pact didn't manage to keep a balance and prevent a financial crisis, which is the European Debt Crisis of 2010. Why did it fail? What were the main turning points that triggered this fall?
2: That's the most common question we all ask even when we talk about the importance of the Pact. It has already failed once. Why is it going to be successful in the future? Something that people often get wrong about the Pact is that these rules are no longer obligatory for member states to follow. When the Pact was first enacted, the European Commission could have the power to even impose economic sanctions to member states that systematically violate the Pact. Yet, this part of the Pact Oh, was scrapped and reformed in 2005 not by proposals of the heavily indebted EU countries but by proposals by the French and German authorities so what we had was a simple guideline that member states were not bound to follow because they wouldn't face any immediate implications the reason why we ended up with the European debt crisis wasn't just because the EU authorities were pretty relaxed with the fiscal sustainability of its member states, but also because we had an incomplete banking union. And the European banks and financial institutions took excessive risk investing huge amounts of money in southern European countries. Do not forget that although Ireland didn't have any kind of fiscal problem, Ireland was a clear case of a banking crisis, the government deficit before the debt crisis exceeded 30% of GDP. Markets reacted very quickly, but EU authorities were quite reluctant to react.
1: Well, now we are facing yet another critical moment since the pandemic has created an unprecedented recession in the economy. EU policymakers intervened quickly this time, unlike in the past, but do you think that the 2010 debt crisis has changed the way EU institutions implement
2: fiscal policy? Undoubtedly, the reaction to the COVID crisis is a clear example of what we have learned from the 2010 debt crisis. EU leaders suspended almost immediately the pact rules. Member states were free to spend massively in supporting the real economy. And deficits in many member states were close to 10% of GDP. On the contrary, in 2010, most EU member states were obliged either by foreign pressure or by domestic necessity to implement austerity measures, diminishing public spending and at the same time negatively affecting the growth prospects of member states. This whole concept of austerity and conditionalities derived from the need of the EU to make an example of this crisis in order to prevent future debt crisis and to force member states to implement structural reforms. Finally, they believed that the Alessina-Dagna concept of expansionary austerity, simply cutting spending can possibly have expansionary results, would ultimately benefit the economy. Expansionary austerity failed miserably. Structural reforms were indeed implemented, but we haven't seen the real outcomes yet. And the only thing in which we have indeed succeeded Is that countries right now are a bit more reluctant to get their fiscal balance out of hand and EU authorities have better control over national fiscal policies.
0: This extensive control over fiscal policies has been considered too interventionalist in national policies, but do you think it's instrumental to their long-term growth? Could the process of examining member states' budgets make a significant impact on pursuing sustainability, especially in this day and age, given the energy
2: crisis? I think that the question is more closely related to politics rather than to economics. I believe that a country like Greece would face interest rates of 8 or 10% if it was outside the eurozone. As we can see now with Argentina, a country that was often compared to Greece, and a case country that Lemar described as a lesson for the euro. But as a member state, Greek interest rates and yields are now between 1 to two percent. So many countries have the capacity to implement, much more easily, fiscal policies and the price they have to pay is to send their draft budget to the Commission for the European semester and get feedback from the Commission. My personal view is that EU bureaucrats sometimes examine fiscal budgets more wisely than national policymakers, and they might be more interested in long-term growth. And that's why Blanchard et al., in their paper about the pact reform suggests that the Commission should be responsible to analyze the sustainability prospects of its country. It's not a question of a deficit of 0, 3, 5, or 10%, but it is a question of how these deficits are being used. What's the purpose of these policies? And ultimately, what's the quality and not the quantity of this deficit? especially nowadays that we face this climate crisis as you mentioned, and countries should invest massively in renewable energy, this investment should not be blocked by an upper threshold of public debt. And I honestly believe that these investments should not even be considered as part of the deficit when assessing countries' budgets.
1: As a last question, Vasilis, ultimately, What do you think is the future of the Sustainability and Growth Pact? If a reform is going to be implemented, what
2: should be the main priorities? It is still unclear um, how this debate is going to involve what is going to be the final decision of European leaders when it comes to reforming the pact. The only thing that it is clear is that this reform is going to take place, it is going to make a difference, and probably most EU countries will be satisfied by it. The two main concepts are the idea of a vertical and direct reform of the numbers, for example, putting the debt threshold at 90%, and a horizontal reform in which we'll put emphasis on the quality and assessment of fiscal sustainability instead of choosing direct numbers. As I mentioned, Blassard et al. proposed the introduction of fiscal standards instead of fiscal rules that could be related to European semesters, and would provide the general guideline of fiscal sustainability. At the same time, a group of 20 German and French economists proposed in 2018, the introduction of an expenditure rule assessed by national authorities, aiming at counter-cyclical policies and excluding public investment. And the ultimate goal would be reducing public debt. I think that the idea of quality both of public debt and public deficit is much more important now over the idea of quantity. When you have a public debt of 60% but you just consume irrationally, sooner or later you're going to pay for it. But if you have public debt above 100% but you invest in infrastructure and development, your potential will increase and debt will ultimately decrease. We do live in a very fragile political, social, and economic environment, and fiscal authorities have to solve a very puzzle conundrum. I think that reforming the sustainability and growth pact is uh, an economic urgency. And I just want to recall Keynes' famous quote. He said, when facts change, I change my mind. In our case now, that the facts have changed, we should change the pact. On
1: this last quote, Vasilis, thank you very much for joining us today and sharing your interesting insights.
2: Uh, Thank you very much for having me here with you and that you gave me the opportunity to talk about this extremely important issue for the EU economy. This is
1: all for today's episode. If you want to see more of our content, check out the EST website.
0: Yes. Thank you for listening. To let us know about something you would like to hear on this podcast, drop us an email at podcast at See you next week.